episode 73 of Strange Brow Radio. I'm your host again and again and again, Tobe Johnson. Thanks for subscribing, all that good stuff, sharing, five-star reviewing, all the self-promotion I can stand with under 22 seconds. Today's guest is Nathaniel Gillis, author, lecturer, and religious demonologist. Maybe you've heard Nathaniel speak before. I'd never met Daniel till we spoke one night, and what a night it was. So more about Nathaniel in a minute. Thank you to our sponsor, Feral by Aaron at Etsy.com. There's more than alchemy sound tools out there. Now we have uh, carved wood spirits. Check out the shop at Etsy at Feral by Aaron, E-R-Y-N. Okay. In a moment, my discussion with Nathaniel Gillis, demonologist. We'll be right back. How are you doing? How are each of you really doing? You know, I think about what other people might be accomplishing or not so accomplishing during this time. It's been since March 3rd since we've technically put ourselves in quarantine and looked at career changes for the better. This is a time of renewal and if you were lucky enough I guess to tune into our quarantine webinar yesterday at Building Beyond 2020 which you can still catch under my name at uh, Tobe Johnson on Facebook. We did a a four-and-a-half-hour-long seminar on looking at a world post-COVID. And there is a world post-COVID. It doesn't seem like it. The news cycle won't let up on it. And the virus won't let up on it. So maybe check that out, Building Beyond 2020. You can find it streaming under my name, Tobe Johnson, on Facebook. And then I'll put it up on the Patreon page. Now, speaking of Patreon, that's where the book is for three bucks. I can't even believe it. I'm sitting here in my little office looking up at a picture of a of a gray that I drew on the wall. <laughs> and that's pretty much the only work I have to do at this point. It it was a uh, it was quite a beast. And so the Al Moon Lab, a shared paranormal experiment, which is an audio experience masquerading as an audiobook is available for download for three bucks. So all you have to do is go to patreon.com and order it. And it will automatically boot you to SoundCloud. And after you're done listening, if you don't want to stay a member, which I I would hope you would, uh, then you can unsubscribe. Now you can buy in at a $3 rate or a $6 rate. More content under the $6 rate little less content under the $3 rate. Not much less. So I appreciate everybody who's uh, stayed with us since the beginning, and we have new people joining up. So the Al Moon Lab, a shared paranormal experiment, it is 15 years condensed into four and a half hours, so you're going to need all 30 days. Unless, uh, well, you're in quarantine, maybe you can finish it in four hours. But it's uh, it definitely starts from the very beginning and works its way forward and it had to be that way because every story has a beginning and anyway 
it's uh, uh, I guess what you'd call a life's work up till now. Now the Al Moon story, that chapter may be closed, but man, oh man, the story is not dead. You know, it's six hours away from me south, and uh, it would take a lot for me to continue to research it and look into it and live with it like I did before. I can't do it. It's just too much to ask. So there's new people involved with it, and um, of course I stay in touch with them. I met the new owners of the Al Moon Lab property, this Beverly Hills cup, uh, couple. Yeah, I just met them less than seven days ago. It was about seven days ago, and man, we had quite a talk. And unbeknownst to them, they are getting activity. <laughs> so I walked them around the property and showed them hot spots. And you've never seen a pair of eyeballs go from regular size to saucer sized as much as when I explained to them where the sweet spots are and the gifting that has begun. The, uh, the gifting that absolutely has begun without them noticing it. Now they notice. Now they're going to know. It's up to them what they want to do with it. I did warn them that uh, there's not a lot of ways I know of that you can put the genie back in the bottle. But maybe our guest today, demonologist Nathaniel Gillis, would have something to say about this. Now, we never encountered anything that I would call a demon. It didn't present itself like that at all. More just like things people objects from another world, another time, another place. But maybe Nathaniel would look at this different. I hope not. So our guest today is Nathaniel J. Gillis, as I said, a demonologist, a religious demonologist. And it's quite a conversation. It's one of the more deeper conversations about um, the afterworld and actually the current world, the supernatural, the preternatural. So my conversation with Nathaniel Gillis, living in the world of demonology. All right, I'm here with Nathaniel Gillis. Can you hear me? Yes. Me, all right, good deal. Nathaniel, thanks for joining me. And uh, we got a lot to get through here, a lot to talk about, including... Uh, this book here, A Moment Called Man, which I already expressed to you. I love the title. <laughs> and uh, you and I were introduced to um, a local friend, and she said, I've got a demonologist you must speak to. And I said, okay, that sounds good. It's been a while. And so uh, here's Nathaniel Gillis. Now, that's quite a, a title to attach to any human. Uh, you don't well, meet a lot of people that uh, go by that title. So uh, mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about yourself, Nathaniel, and then we'll just start from there. Well, it's a it's an honor to be with everyone tonight, and um, I'm honored to be here, and I'm thankful for the opportunity. Uh, that word demonologist is predicated on our current understanding of what a demon is. And so as a demonologist, I would assess myself and say that I'm a part of what's called the new demonology movement. And, and that movement consists of uh, not really believing uh, that, that demons are fallen angels, or the, the progeny of fallen angels, but they are actually um, disincarnate beings. And so demonology in my mind uh, would not be the study of malevolent evil, it would be the study of afterlife phenomenon and how it interacts with everyone right now on the earth. 
Okay. And it, did it start that way for you or how has your worldview well, shifted in that? I, as I said to you before, I, I grew up in the uh, Christian tradition and uh, it didn't really do much for me because when I, in terms of demonology, because when I moved into a house at the age of eight, I uh, encountered paranormal events and manifestations. And uh, the more I grew out of those experiences and into the research, the more I looked back at what I experienced. And it, it, it just, it, it made much more sense to me that uh, it was, it was a, almost a language, if you will. And uh, I really felt like there was something trying to communicate, if not verbally, through symbolism, through manifestations. And uh, so, you know, I, I got into the research. I, I read as much material as I could. And, uh, yeah, it, the, as far as biblically, it doesn't make any sense. It's not there. And so that, that's, what, that's what got me into this field. But uh, I, I would, to answer your question, I would simply say, yeah, I mean, it changed traumatically. <laughs> I say that traumatically because when I really got into the working and the literature of it, the demonology that I grew up with as a child fell apart. And uh, I was forced to reevaluate the teachings that I was taught as a young man. And so that's what pushed me into the field. And uh, in, a, in a very strong sense of the word that has really made an impact in my own life in terms of what it is that I, I help people with one-on-one -on -one in my deliverance ministry. So, yeah. Okay. So you're growing up at eight years old, you said in this haunted house, your family's all impacted by this as well. Um, to a smaller degree, I, uh, I encountered just numerous events and uh, I would see shadow people. I, I would wake up in the middle of the night and there would be a black cloud lingering, hovering in the corner of the room. And, uh, you know, it, I, we lived in a house and the, 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 uh, the, the floor was wooden. And so imagine like you're trying to sleep and you're playing a video game or something or and you're just there, you know, the door's shut. Next thing you know, you hear that wooden floor creak as if there's weight being placed on it all the way up to your door. And then, you know, you're, you're trembling and shaking and you open it. There's no one there. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty terrifying. And so it, it would follow me. I would go and spend the night at friends' houses. We'd have sleepovers and it would be there with me. And it was just, you know, it, and I don't really know why it was attracted to me per se. Uh, but what I do know and I can prove is that this is far less a demonic in terms of uh, fallen angel horns and hoofs. It's far less that form of phenomena. And it's very much a form of unconscious consciousness. If that, if I can say it like that. And so what I approach this field, it's, it's important to me that I approach it as a language, as a question and not just explicitly phenomenon and manifestation. Okay. And, but your worldview at that time is being impacted by your folks. What were right. they telling you about the activity around there? They experienced very little, very little. In fact, it was, it wasn't until we actually moved out of the house that my dad pulled me aside and said, listen, you know, I believe you and, and everything that you told me about the house and all the events. He said, I never wanted to tell you this because I was afraid it would freak you out. He said, but I've had some of my own experiences. And he said, and I really do think that someone had died in the home. And I was like, oh, you know, gee, thanks, Dad. About five, six years too late. <laughs> you know, right, right, right. What's going on? Um, 
yeah, so it, it, it made an impact on me, no doubt. Wow. Okay. So it, at that point, you guys leave, and did the activity follow you? And you're saying that it, uh, it seemed to follow it, you for sleepovers. Did it go to the next house? It did for about a year. Um, I remember uh, sitting in my room in the new house, and I had a bar stool and a glass of water on the, on the bar stool, and just sitting there reading the book. And next thing I know, the glass of water flies across the room, breaks against the wall. <laughs> and that same presence, that same dark feeling that I, I knew and grew up with back in the day was there as well. So, you know, it, it didn't stay for long. Uh, I would say that it left about two or th- like two years after I actually moved into the new house. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, it made me really question what it was that I experienced and, uh, what I just, I did one day, I just wrote everything down that I had seen, witnessed, felt, smelled even. Um, and I really just did a kind of a comparison to what other people have experienced. And I'll tell you what, it made me feel less crazy. <laughs> what about, uh, something that you were leaning on as far as protection? Did you feel that, uh, there was any, um, help from angelic host or things like that as a child. I mean, prayer. Yes, sir. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. Sir. I, um, yeah, there, there, there was a night where everything came to a head and I, I was losing sleep. I had failed a grade in school. Um, I would have the same nightmares every night. And so I would stay up till about five or six in the morning till the sun rose. And then for some reason, as an eight year old, I would feel like, okay, now I can go to sleep. <laughs> which meant, you know, if I have like an hour of sleep and I'm going to, going to school, I just slept all day. So it was, it, it was really a stressful time for me. And so there was one night where I just couldn't take it anymore. I didn't know what to do. Uh, I was at my wit's end. I didn't know who to talk to, especially at school. Nobody would listen to me. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a weird thing, a haunting. You know, there's a lot of people who are afraid to talk about it. And there's people that, are, you know, it's, just, it's a different thing altogether. But I remember locking myself in the bathroom and just sitting in the corner of the room and just crying. Uh, I didn't know what to do, man. I just, it was awful. And I felt that entity walk into the bathroom and I, I felt like I couldn't get away. And, and I will say this, a lot of people ask me, you know, what, what was the scariest thing about what you went through? It really wasn't like the shadow figure. It wasn't the noises. It wasn't the smell of what, you know, the, the decomp aroma that would be in the house stench none of that it was just whenever that presence was was near me it would take up the whole room and it would just make me feel like i was the smallest being in existence and i didn't know what else to do so i just said you know what god i said i i can't do this anymore i just can't i don't know what i don't know who to talk to i don't know what to do it's following me I'm, I'm losing my life. Like my, my life's getting smaller. And, and, uh, when I did, I said, you know, I said, God, could you just take this from me? And it was as if something else walked into the room too. I don't want to say it's just that that entity left, but something else came. I felt a lifting, like there was something just, it became lighter. That's the only way I can put it. And that, that was it. I mean, it did come to me, like I said, in the next house, uh, but yeah, it changed my life. And it really, when it left, it really made me think about how many people have went through things that are similar, but are far worse than what I went through. You know what I mean? And that's what really got me into this field 
is to, to help people who are in malevolent hauntings. Okay, so you, do you start immersing yourself into the paranormal from a Judeo-Christian standpoint, or what's your next move? Well, yes, sir. My, my, my next move was to follow the deliverance ministries within my own religious movement. Uh, was, I grew up in a Pentecostal uh, religious system, so we had a lot of people who would do exorcisms, like not exorcisms according to Catholicism, uh, but, you know, they would do the laying on of hands. And I'm talking guys who would do 30 and 40 day fasts. I mean, I've, <laughs> these guys were very gifted at what they did. And so I, I just began to pour myself into the exorcistic literature of biblical antiquity. And while I was doing that, I would analyze these deliverance ministries. And I would watch how that deliverance consciousness would react in the presence of evil. And uh, it's, it's really a fascinating study, but that was it. Yeah, I, w- I researched uh, Judeo-Christianity and its approach to exorcism and spiritual warfare. Okay, and so are you introduced also into the show of deliverance rather than actual deliverance? I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of what secularism introduced to, especially when it comes to, you know, Protestants or Pentecostals, mm-hmm. as far as doing deliverance ministry or uh, people that are enacting a show uh for for an audience did, did you that's were you right. witness to that uh no not at all not at all and that's i think that's been a very it, it, sometimes it's a misnomer some people think that um pentecostal deliverance ministries that are you know the sum total of whatever we see uh out there you know asking for big boats and big planes the guys that i i followed um they didn't perform any exorcistic rites that's what's crazy you know, I mean, in my research, even in biblical antiquity in the first century, your exorcists, they would have formulas. It would be a step-by-step process of interrogation and, you know, debating on how did you, how did you get into the person? How are you going to leave? Uh, they didn't do any of that. I mean, we had a guy that came in and he, he was a uh, missionary's kid. He grew up in Africa. And so he, he, taught, he was taught his spiritual warfare and concept of warfare in Africa. And um, he wouldn't do anything. He would just walk up to him, lay hands on him, and say, go. And, I mean, <laughs> these guys were, were bad dudes. So, I mean, and it wasn't so much of a show. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that, to, to them, the deliverance ministry is just a form of cosplay, you know? And thankfully, I was exposed to something where these guys were real. You know, they would go out and fast for 35 days. Uh, they work with angels. And so... While there is a fraudulent aspect to the deliverance ministry, and I'm sure you're aware of some, I, I know them as well. Uh, but thankfully, the people that I were connected to was just, you know, they were authentic. And what about the people seeking to be delivered? Were there unfortunate mental issues that weren't associated with the demonic realm that just come, you know, with the territory? Um, I'm sure that, that they had cases like that. I don't know what they did. Personally, I don't know what they did with those cases. Uh, the times that they would come through and preach revivals at my church, um, we would just we would see miracles and healings and, and whatnot. And uh, so, I imagine they had cases like that. But unfortunately, uh, whenever they would come through, I never I never saw that. And I, I, I faced that, you know, in my own ministry, in my own uh, calling. But I don't know what they have done with that. I hope that makes sense. I, I don't know what they have. I'm sure they have an- could answer that question. Uh, but I wasn't present for any of that kind of phenomenon. Okay, so would you go with um, 
these mentors, let's say, and go to their house to do a healing at someone's home, or would they come to church on Sunday? How would it, how would it yeah. work? Well, in Pentecostalism, what they would do is they would have like Sunday night church services, and uh, they wouldn't really go do in-home ministry, especially your evangelists. They would just, you know, people would come to them. And I remember one time we had a lady who would come in for cancer. I'll never forget it. And uh, it's just, you know, they, yes, to answer your question, yeah, they wouldn't do in-home ministry as much in, in local churches. I'm sure they would in their own families and whatnot, but I never went with them to do in-home ministries. Now, I personally uh, go and visit homes. I don't, I'm not sure that they did. You know what I mean? So I, I, that's why I've kind of taken everything that I've experienced and researched and actually broadened it. You know, I, I, I want to do it in a more secular venue, not to be limited to a religious tradition alone. Um, you know, because I think you're exactly, you made a very, very good point in question. There's people hurting in homes too, you know, and yeah. Well, so as part of it, the fact that the church is all there praying with the pastor in order to deliver them as a group? Well, I'll say this, in the, in the, the, the discipline of exorcism and your exorcist, they, they all fall into three categories. They're one of three. Uh, according to biblical antiquity. Yeah. The first one is that they'll either, they'll carry amulets. Okay. So like in Catholicism, they'll have holy water and a cross. They'll have the Bible. They'll pray Psalms 53, Psalms 91. Those are amulets. Your second exorcist will come out there and he'll, he will, he, he has no amulets. He'll just quote scriptures. Um, Isaac Glorios was one who did that in the 16th century. He would quote Psalms 109 and 6. The third kind of exorcist was one who would simply displace evil because of how close he was to God. That's historically what an exorcist, the three types of exorcists were. The ones that I were, were witnessed, I guess I should say, they, they didn't have amulets. They didn't have holy water, and uh, they didn't really quote scriptures. I mean, I would watch them. They would just walk by people and say, go, G-O. And that entity would either, like, there were people that would re, re, like regurgitate what's called ectoplasm. And um, they would wipe it away with a, a handkerchief, fold the handkerchief, open it back up, and it would be gone. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it was pretty crazy stuff, you know what I mean? But, um, yes, mm -hmm. that, that was the type of exorcist they were. It was the proximity to div divinity that allowed them uh, to do what they did. Okay. But and so this is interesting. So you're mm -hmm. seeing that it's effective. You're seeing it and through the lens, the worldview of the Pentecostal worldview, yes, but you're moving it uh, slowly <laughs> uh, towards yeah. something secular. So I'm trying yeah. to, let's explain this journey. Okay. So what I, I begin to, to enter into the deliverance ministry myself. And I, I preached a lot around the country and um, I just, from what I saw, I didn't really, it didn't really speak to me, to me anymore. And I realized in my research that, like I said before, the, the fallen angel theory was falling apart in my hands. And so while I did believe that the ritual of exorcism they were performing and how they uh, approached spiritual warfare, while I did believe it was powerful and, and meaningful, I, I was uh, enchanted by the idea of the afterlife. And the idea that, um, listen, you know, just because the ritual worked doesn't mean we know why it worked. <laughs> and so I began to do my research and ask the right questions. 
And a lot of people, and especially in Pentecostalism and uh, even, in, even in my field right now, they'll sit there and say, okay, listen, the ritual works, everything's successful without asking why it works, what it is we're encountering and uh, what it is that we're, what, what it is we can learn from them as well. And uh, you're right. So I, I, I moved towards the idea of the afterlife. And when I did that, I, I began to encounter entities within homes outside of church. And, you know, great people, they would never go to, some of them would have, would have never stepped foot in a church, you know, but they needed help. And so along with my research, I, I, I was convicted and said, listen, Nate, you know, you just can't be limited to a particular local assembly. And so I just, you know, I, I started going into homes and helping people in that way. And that's when everything started to change because that fallen angel theory falls apart when you're actually in a home and not at church. Now talk about your first experience of going into a home alone to do a deliverance. Well, okay, that was a, um, it was a murder. Um, there was a wife who was murdered by a, her daughter's friend. And uh, it was somebody had messaged me. And it's interesting because my dad's a pastor. And I think they thought that I was my dad. <laughs> and he, you know, he, he and I have way different philosophies and some of those. So, um, you know, so they messaged me and said, listen, my, my, I got the message from the actual sister of the husband who was also attacked. So the sister's sister-in-law was the one that got murdered. But uh, they said this. They said after the murder and prior to the murder, really, there was a, a lot of uh, paranormal activity in the home. And that um, one night there was the, the friend of the girl came into the home, stabbed everybody, killed the wife. And she said, so now the husband's is, is he, he's healing. She said, but there's been a lot of shadow figures, a lot of paranormal manifestations. And he's not being able to grieve. He cannot grieve and he really can't even heal from this physically even until this stops. <laughs> so that was, I mean, uh, I, that was my introduction to this. You know what I mean? It was just a crash course. Sure. And uh, so when I got there, I had already told the sister, I said, uh, I, said I, don't, I don't know why I'm seeing this. Uh, I don't even know how, to be honest with you, but I, I was almost in two places at once. As we were messaging each other on a social network, I told her, I said, I'm walking up a two-story home. I'm walking up the stairs. I said, I'm being drawn to a closet. And I said, whatever this entity is, whoever this entity is, it's in that closet upstairs. She freaked out because she was called to that same closet the night before. And so that was, that was the beginning of my life changing in terms of what it is I encountered and uh, how it is that I've changed my approach to these entities. Uh, but we w I went in there, and um, to answer your question, and I could just feel a heaviness. There was a, a very ominous feeling in the home. And I, I pushed record on my phone, and I took the, the, the sister of the, the husband, who actually got a hold of me in the beginning, I took her upstairs, and we went to, to different rooms. And I remember going into one room, and I, I make it a point to tell everybody that I help. I don't want to know anything. You know what I mean? I, I really don't want to know. I, I, when I go in there, I want to go in there with a clean slate so that whatever I pick up will be organic. And so I go into a closet and I say, okay, there were just articles in the closet. I said, okay, that entity's here. Uh, went turn around to another closet. I said, okay, that, all, that entity's also attracted to this closet here. 
um, I was upstairs and I said, okay, the victim is trying to talk to me. I said, but she's not coming through as clearly as I would like. So we went downstairs and I had a vision. I could just see it. Uh, I saw the victim um, sitting on a wooden chair next to a wooden table, smoking a cigarette. And uh, the only problem is the wooden chair wasn't there. So, I mean, I was picking up a lot of stuff. And so I went and sat down with the husband and I told him what I was feeling. And uh, he turns out that the uh, father-in-law of the victim hated him. The husband had hated the marriage. Um, when he, would, he, would, he was a drug addict and an alcoholic. And what he would do is he would beat the victim as a child, obviously back in the day. He would, he would beat her and her mother unconscious and uh, would threaten to kill them and everything. And then I said, okay. And he said, yeah. He said, it's funny you mentioned the closet upstairs. He said, because whenever he would go into that fit of rage, the only way his wife could get him out of it was treating him like a kid, putting him in the car, going and getting him green model trains. And that's exactly what was upstairs in that closet. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, it, 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 I can go on about it. But it, yeah, so he, he also had bass. Um, he has some like, he was a big bass fisherman. So he had fishing poles. That was in the other closet, by the way. And he goes, it's kind of interesting you mentioned him as well. He goes, you know, you mentioned something about the, the dining table in, in the kitchen. I said, yeah. He goes, yeah. You know who made that? I said, no. He said, yeah, my father-in-law. I said, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, and you're right. There was a chair that used to be there. And he made that too. So have you known this whole time that you're a sensitive? Yes, sir. Okay. So you grew up with that. And as you mentioned your father too, how they mistakenly maybe tried to get in touch with your father. Is he also sensitive? Um, Not so much. He's gifted in his own ways. Um, It was what was most interesting about that is he, when I realized that they may have thought that they were talking to him. He was kind of like, listen, you know, you're, you're the paranormal guy. You go do what you got to do. You know what I mean? So he's, he's more gifted in um, just teaching and everything. But I knew that there was something odd about me, even when I was eight or nine years old, you know, so it's, I've lived with it. And I opted, I operated in those kind of giftings within my local assembly. And I realized after, like I said, my research of what it is I encountered. And I, I just knew that I was called to a more secular venue. And that's really why I'm here. But that was my crash course into it. Um, I mean, my God, we, I don't, it, it was, it happened. It all happened so fast. It was, it was wild. Um, I, I was sitting in the, in the living room in a chair and there was an atheist there present. And uh, so you had the, and the atheist who was a friend of the husband. Then you had the sister of the, of the husband. And then so, and then one of the children, and I, I said, listen, I said, I just feel like I'm going to pray. I said, I, I don't know what I'm going to pray. I just feel it. And as I began to talk to them about what I was feeling, I felt that entity from the closet walk right into the living room and the atmosphere changed. I mean, it's like the air got thick. And I said, listen, I, the only thing I know to do is I'm just going to pray that my angel um, will come and take him, this entity, take him away. And uh, I just began to pray. When I began to pray, there, the only way I can explain it was the room got very hot, very hot. Um, the husband was shake like, 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 you know how like somebody says, get that dirt off your shoulder. <laughs> they like, they got stuff on their, their shoulders. They're trying to get it off with their hands. Sure. That's what he's doing. 
and he's screaming and he's going, oh my God, it's hot, it's hot, it's hot, it's hot. That's all I kept saying. And that presence, it was weird. It got very strong. It was the strongest I had felt it yet. And then instantaneously it disappeared. Boom. And when it did, the woman that had contacted me in the beginning, she was crying. And she goes, oh, my God. And I'm sitting there, I'm looking, because I'm going, what happened? You know what I mean? What, what, what's going to happen next? And she goes, no. She goes, Nate, she goes, the room got like five or six shades lighter, visibly lighter. The house, it, it was almost like a different color entirely. It was crazy. And she go, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I mean, there's so many details here. I'm, I'm writing <laughs> stuff down, but go ahead. I don't want to interrupt you. Well, yeah. So, so she began to freak out. I, I'm looking around thinking, what just happened? You know, I mean, it was like a whole different building. I mean, it felt like I was in a, I was in a different place. And the, the darkness had left. And I turned to the atheist and the atheist is bawling. And um, so the woman, she goes, listen, mate, she goes, I, just to make sure that I'm not going crazy, she says, I'm going to go upstairs and see if it feels and looks the same way upstairs. And she did. And it was the same. Like, I mean, not same as it downstairs, you know, it was lighter. It was tangibly and visibly different. So after I left that house, about two months later, that atheist called me. And he said, man, he said, I'm just going to say this. He said, I was taught that spirits, not just God, but spirits themselves, they do not exist. He said, but since that happened to me, he said, I have went through the phone book in our city and I've called every pastor I could find to give them a testimony of what I experienced in that home. Wow. Yeah. He says, and I feel, and here's what it's all about. He, I'm, I'm not going to get emotional. I'm trying not to. He goes, man, he goes, he said, you know, he said, I really feel like it's my calling to do this as well. <laughs> well, that's the ultimate, uh, I guess, evidence right there. I mean, yeah. you know, no, no atheist in foxholes, but none in a demonically oppressed house either. I mean, oh, you yeah. said you said some things here that are really interesting here. So okay. you you believe that you have an angelic host that can come in and do warfare with you. Mm -hmm. But yet the idea of the demonic realm being from the fallen angels, mm -hmm. um, there's something else going on. So what is that something else? Um, afterlife phenomena. So I've worked with my, I have one angel that I particularly know of. He's always on my right side. I know that because I've had dreams of him. I have visions of him. I've worked with him. I had a friend, um, I won't get into that, but yeah, so <laughs> it, it does work with me and how, but how, I guess your question is how, how does that correlate to me believing that demons aren't fallen angels? Is that what you're asking? Well, I mean, you, there's no room for that in your philosophy. Right. There isn't. Um, it's not really biblical at all. It's not. And I believe that the term demon was a functional migratory word. Uh, that that the the Hebrew thought took and applied to anything that was malevolent in their in their world, even as far back as the Old Testament, their demons were demons of pestilence. 
You know what I mean? So, so that's why I began to study and ask really good questions, not bad questions, not the, not the wrong questions, but why it is that they interpret their worldview like they did. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I've never encountered a demon who's a pestilence. I mean, you know, the, the demon of, uh, you know, the sun and all these things. And that's some of these terminologies that I pull right out of the Old Testament, but they don't exist. And the imagery fell apart. And I, we're not even, we haven't even gotten to the New Testament or anything like that, but the imagery fell apart. Um, even in Psalms 91, you have Reshef, with Reshef was supposed to be a demon of bows and arrows. It's the 21st century. We right. haven't had a demon of bows and arrows in 3,000 years. I mean, it, it, so, so either, either a demon is predicated on the technology of warfare at the time, or what they're doing is they're interpreting their worldview, and they're slapping an agent onto an event and calling both the event and the agent demonic, if that makes sense. Well, sure. You know, it's a simplified answer for a really complex question. And I hear you say over and over again that we're not asking the right questions. We don't even know the questions to ask. It sounds like this is where the real work is done for demonology is to sure, learn yeah. to learn the language. The, the symbols themselves have these questions embedded into them. So talk to me about the language, the symbols. Well, it's like you said, we have to have a new vocabulary for this phenomenon. And unlike religions who have evolved throughout history, at least most of them, uh, and now they're in the 21st century, they have evolved to where they're, they're relevant to modernity. Unlike those religious systems, demonology has, it's stagnant, it's static, it's monolithic. That sentence is the same sentence people have been regurgitating for thousands of years. And yet, truthfully, we're not asking the right questions because we don't even know how to articulate it yet. And that was my issue with biblical antiquity and the origin of evil, the Nephilim and fallen angels and horned and you know, hoofed devils. My point was, if we're not asking the right questions, we're, we're left with nothing but wrong answers. And so the issue with the language that we're using and the vocabulary we're, we're employing is that biblical history, they did not define demons. They described them. And those acts of description, what's called predicate theology, that became modernity's definitions for everything that we're experiencing. And so when you go into the Bible, you'll have demons of this, demons of destruction, demons of temptation, spirits of fear. And, and truthfully, it's all built upon personal experience. Do I believe there was destruction? Of course. Do I believe that that person who encountered malevolent evil was fearful? Of course. But that doesn't mean that was the demon of fear. That doesn't mean that was the demon of destruction. And so, so what we've been doing is we have been defining malevolent entities by definition or by descriptions, missing the point that demons are not what they do. And not only can that be backed up through history, but we can go even to the first century on, we start to see that their demonology 
goes through a religious deconstruction. And in the first century, we really see um, for the first time what it is that they've been trying to articulate. And what it is, it's not horns and hooves, it's afterlife phenomena. And that's my point in all of this, is the new, new demonology is not to say that the term demon is wrong, but the origin of them is wrong. What it uh, is, we're, are, that you saying that, are you saying that they're all at one time earthbound, I mean, they're earthbound spirits that were at one time flesh and blood? Yes. Okay. Every, all, this is the, your philosophy that all demonic experiences are that. Uh, yes. And here's okay. the issue. We're dealing with liminal beings. Liminal is an academic term meaning being in between. It's one entity, but it's in two places, or at least manifesting as a, a, a hybrid entity. Now, in, in biblical antiquity, they would call that Nephilim, right? Are you familiar with the Nephilim legend? Oh, yes. Sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. It's a very, we can get to that later if you want to as well. But yeah, so it's being in between. And so the terminologies they would employ in, in, in the Old Testament, um, it, was, it was awful terminologies. I'm, I'm not saying that they, they, they're bad people or anything like that. What I'm saying is it no longer works for us. The torch that antiquity gave us to light up the darkness, it's turned to ash. And now modernity is groping in the darkness. We need new words because the phenomenon is the same thing. It's, they're doing the same thing they've always done. And that's what really led me into originally just looking at afterlife phenomena, trying to understand why it is that there are demons that don't even have a belief system, that do not care about Yahweh, who aren't afraid of Allah, right? They're, they're not defined by any religious creed. Okay, so getting to the why of this, that's, of you know, the complex issue here is the fact that there is this blind clockmaker that has set things in motion, mm -hmm. and this is somehow a part of this greater plan. Do you, do you believe that as well? Um, I don't know. I believe there would be a greater plan, yes. Um, I think that the idea of a demon being disincarnate is all throughout antiquity. We just didn't know where to look. It's in the legend of Nephilim. Um, you know, a lot of the demonologists that I work with, uh, well, I have worked with in Pentecostalism, they would simply say, you know what, I don't believe that demons are disincarnate spirits. And I would say, okay, then you have no demonology. Because even if it's the progeny of Nephilim that died, it's still their disincarnate spirits that, quote unquote, we're wrestling with. <laughs> so my, I guess what I'm saying is this, is that the terminologies that we've been using no longer works. And sadly, those terminologies have, have, have limited us to certain religious dogmas, and it's confined us to, to a part of history where the, the concept, the evolution of demonic thought had not yet matured enough for us to get an understanding, a truly expansive understanding of what it is they experienced, why it is they quantified it as fallen angels, and what it is that we're left with. In, in terms of literature. I want to ask you more about the first case that you worked here because I've been inside a oppressed home and felt this unnatural heat develop in a room. Mm -hmm. And as far as the science behind what's going on, um, understanding the why 
of temperature changes is really interesting to me as far as uh, a temperature difference towards heat, because I could imagine an entity drawing power and, right. and emptying a room out of heat. But the opposite, um, you know, as soon as we explain that to a priest, he, uh, you know, went to the person's house and, and did a cleansing. I'm not Catholic, but the person was. But as far as not only that, the temperature difference, but the fact that the being is being the right word here that you would use for a demon. Yes, a being. A, a being. A, yeah, yeah. Dwell, dwelling in a closet. I mean, that's such a typical place for, <laughs> you know, your, your imagination to go. So what, yeah. have you what have you found as far as there being um, a location that is typical for a being to go? Is that, uh, that seems very typical. It, it's typical in the literature and in terms of hauntology, hauntology, I think that I, I don't I don't think I know that the reason they're attached to certain portions of a home is because number one, they have what's called spatial cognition. And they're aware of boundaries. Boundaries that even sometimes I'm not aware of. We aren't researchers aren't aware of. They know them. And certain boundaries mean more to them than others. Isn't that interesting? And that they're they're what's called, and this is a term that I have conned coined rather it's um memory in movement and so what we have are entities who are attached to certain memories in that home and that was the only part of that entire house that he had any attachment to because those were his belongings now you asked a very good question as to what really was going on and what that case taught me it taught me something very profound something that I had thought about, but I really, in theory, you know, it's theory, but once it's in practice and you could see, okay, this is, this, this is what's happening here. It, it's, you know, it changed me forever. But the person, the murderer, the person that had committed this crime, the husband told me that when she had walked into the house with a knife, that there was a male guttural voice that was coming out of her body and that she would just, she would slash and stab, and then she would laugh in that male voice. And so what's also interesting is after all that happened, that entity left her, but it stayed in the house. Matter of fact, I was sitting in the same restaurant, in the same place I was when I first got the message from the family. I was sitting at the same place when the social worker, I didn't even know who she was. The social worker sat next to me with her husband. She looked at me and said, what are you reading? I get into a conversation with her. She asked what it is I do. Next thing I know, she says, I can tell you that I know you're telling the truth, but I can't tell you how I know it. Turns out that that was a social worker working with the girl. And so what had happened was once the, the murder happened, that possessing entity left and it went and lodged itself up upstairs in that closet. And uh, so what that taught me was that there is a measure of consent within possession and that what that entity did was it would literally lay upon like, okay, not, I'm going to say this in the first century, we have a concept called the debook. The term didn't originate till the 16th century, but what we have here is a concept of afterlife phenomena 
actually being demonic possession and not fallen angels, okay? And the portion, uh, the concept of the Dibuk is literally when that spirit, the disincarnate spirit, that's what a Dibuk is, will lay on a person like a blanket, like a mantle, like a coat someone just puts over them. And that was the very first time in my practice that I realized that what that entity did is that it would look either for shared memories in the person they're wanting to possess, or it would find some insecurity or dark emotion that was the most in the likeness of his presence. So what do I mean by that? I meant that I mean this. That girl suffered from a lot of suicidal thoughts. So did he when he was alive. You following me? Yes. So what happened was that before, and this is a principle that I think all demonologists should understand about this phenomenon. Before the possessed person conforms to the possessor, the possessor will conform to the possessed. It's a process. And so a lot of what I do is I have to decipher between emotions. I will look in a, and I do it my own way. But in understanding that, we have to understand that there is a, has to be a measure of consent. Because the reason that entity is doing its best to mirror the emotions of that person is so that when he really wants to complete something or go somewhere or really take a stronghold in that person's mind, that that person cannot determine which thoughts are whose. Okay, and you're saying this mainly comes with consent, but not prior, I mean, not only. Not only with consent, right. Okay, so what about generational uh, curses that attach themselves without this person knowing? Uh, do you believe in that? Yeah, I have a story for that too. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. I, I had a, um, a young woman. I was actually out to dinner again. I don't know why this always happens when I'm eating. But I had a young woman. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. But she, um, I had, a friend of mine was with me, and he went to the bathroom, and he, I guess he knew some of the people that worked at the restaurant. And he's like, you know what? He, he told me, he said, listen, he goes, I have a friend of mine that's going through something. And he goes, I know what you do. You might be able to help her. And I said, okay. So she sits down next to me with her boyfriend. And um, I put my book down. I say, you know what, what's going on? And she says, well, she goes, my best friend's grandfather. This is interesting, okay? This is, <laughs> uh, so she said, my best friend's grandfather was chased out of his home two weeks ago by a demon. And she said he had a heart attack in the yard and he died. She said, so my best friend is living in that same home right now, all by herself, and she thinks that entity is still there. She says, so I'm thinking, you know, maybe you can give me your number or your, your social media information, and you guys can connect. She said, because I really believe you need to help her. So when she said that, the only way I can explain it is that I looked behind her and I saw a dark cloud just descend down upon her shoulders. And this is, um, this is how these entities work. I said, okay. I said, listen, I, I said, I, I really do believe that I can help your friend. And I said, I would really, it would be a, a, an honor to really, you know, get a hold of her 
and, and deal with some of these, these entities or if there's more than one. Uh, but I said, I, I really also, I also think that there's an attachment on you. She goes, what? I said, yeah. I said, because I think that, you know, you, you do want your friend to be helped. I said, but I also think that there is a struggle within you and that you're trying to articulate something that that's almost impossible to, to articulate. She goes, what do you mean? I said, well, listen, I said, there's a spirit of suicide that just landed and manifested on your shoulders behind you. And I said, in my gift, I only see what wants to be seen. And I said, so I know you came over here for, to help somebody. And I said, tonight I'm going to, but it's not going to be your friend. I said, it's going to be you. I said, let's talk about suicide. She began to cry. Her boyfriend didn't know what was going on. Like he was just kind of like, what? And she's crying. And she says, how do you, how'd you know? I said, I, I, don't, you know, I, don't, I don't know. I have no clue how I know. I just, it happened. She goes, okay. She goes, uh, last year. No, that's what happened. She, she, okay, watch that. She holds her arm out, puts my finger on her wrist. And I felt the scarification of that entity. I said, what is this? She said, last year, I slipped both of my wrists because I wanted to die. I said, okay. And I said, what, what led you to make that decision? And why is it that I'm seeing this attachment? I said, because right now, there are two natures in you. This goes back to William James. He called him a twice-born character. That was the best explanation. He, he a, he's a god in my eyes, but that's the best way he would describe it. Twice-born character. And I said, you're dealing with two forms of emotions here. I said, that attachment is feeding off of you. And it's making you want to do exactly what it did. I said, so who in your family committed suicide? She said, my grandfather did in 2014. Now, why is that meaningful? Because there was a girl that came to me that day whose grandfather died, who was chased by an entity, right? Who needed help. It right. was her. Yeah. So what is happening here? What is happening is that entity is messing with her mind to the point that there are ways that she needs to cry out, but she can't. And so all she can do is feel. And whenever she gets into the presence of an empath who knows what they're feeling, that entity has no choice but to be seen. And so all I said is, is I just said, listen, I said, I need you to say these words. It's not my fault that this happened to me. When I did that, she began to bawl. She put her head in, in the chest of her boyfriend. And I said, okay. I said, that entity has left. And I said, and the relationship that has been broken and damaged, that your relationship, really, their relationship. I said, your relationship has been damaged, essentially, by this entity. I said, that's gone. And I said, now you guys can have a whole relationship and get engaged. I said, because I, I just, I didn't tell her he was going to do it, but I just felt, I saw, you know, but since then her life's changed. But what does that tell me? Just the same thing I encountered in the, in the murder case. 
When these entities look for possession or even attachment, they will look for something that mirrors their nature. Even if it's a, a small portion of them, they will lay upon a person as if it's a, a mantle or a cloak. And then that is, um, it's a part of possession. It's, uh, I call it um, fact-finding. They're researching ways for consent. What can I manipulate you with? There's a book out there called The Manufacturing of Consent. And a lot of times, at least in the cases I've encountered, that's what happens. It's a thought. Do you believe this, self, this about yourself? Yes, I do. Okay, that's consent. Because well, what if... No, go ahead, sorry. So yeah, so I'm not... Yeah, so there are measures of consent, mm -hmm. but that's how it begins to mold the will of the person until it's broken. And now he has his social skin. What a term. Oh my gosh. It's, I mean, it's so maniacal. It's so. Oh my it's, God. It's, it's apocalyptic. Uh, I mean, the way you're describing it has this, uh, dark. Chilling. I got chills. Yeah. Yeah. You have this dark poetry about you already, Nathaniel, and you're hmm. bringing it about, you know, in a way that CS Lewis might even be envious. So for oh, me, God. it's a, uh, it's taking on a, a whole new form here. So the, the, the pre, the, the thought pattern, the pre-thought that goes yeah. into uh, how they look for a host. To, how did yes. you word that? They slide into the skin of the other person here. So these people that already have, um, you know, they already have notions of addiction within them and they already have notions of being abuser or anger. Yeah. So these demons, I mean, they can't just be one for one emotion. There must be Legion, oh, yeah. legions oh, for yeah. all these emotions. So can you be, a, can you have several hundreds of demons, thousands of demons? I don't know about hundreds and thousands. I've encountered one or two within one person. And let me get back to that, that the imagery and poetry of it conforming to you until you conform to it. We have, we have, there's a case out there of a heart transplant recipient. And this is the best way I could paint this picture for everyone to understand because it, it's so fitting. What happened was he had a heart problem. So he needed a new heart. He got a heart transplant. Now in my work, I have two descriptions for due to two different stages of possession. The first stage is what I call the EE. It's the exterior entity. The second stage is the IE, it's the interior entity. I'm not just contrasting them because they're separate entities. I'm contrasting them because there are separate modes of operation involved in them. So an in exterior entity is when that heart goes into the body of the recipient, but it's exterior, it's outside. Why? Because it has not yet attached itself to the cells blood vessels, the biological nature of that recipient. It's, it's there, but it's not attached to anything yet. Does it make sense? The moment it is attached is the moment it's present, it's there, it sends off information. From what I said about thought processes, it'll send something out 
And then that person will send something back to it. And if there's an agreement, that's an interior entity. It's as simple as that. Now, the reason, like, again, the reason why I quantify them differently is because your exterior entities, a lot of them don't even care about possession. Those, a lot of those beings are what we encounter in hauntology, in houses, excavations, graveyards. Once they get interior, once they get interior, they are, what they're doing is they're gathering their consciousness to a concentrated location. They don't want to be everywhere at once. They want to be at one place at one time. For what? Because they want to see, they want to feel, they want to touch, and most importantly, they want to be seen. And we can get into that as well, if you'd like. Well, are you saying that we only notice these things when they go sideways? I mean, when we're talking about demons, we're not talking about just spirits that want to utilize and host somebody for a joyride. There's this nefariousness, obvious nefariousness to it. So um, looking at what you're describing, uh, can we can we look at other examples of people that are being possessed by something that's not nefarious Absolutely. that you get involved with. Absolutely. Now that happened as early as the first century. So, so in biblical antiquity, in the old Testament, your demons were idols. That's what, that's why I was just so disgusted with what I was taught. They're idols. That's what we were taught. And that's what the old Testament teaches. Now the idols, according to the new Testament, they don't exist. These demigods, they don't exist. So my question back then was, what are we dealing with, right? So in the intertestamental period, the evolution of Hebrew thought changes from horns and hooves into more of an afterlife phenomenon. Now, in the first century, we have a Jewish exorcist by the name of, of Eleazar ben Simon. And Eleazar ben Simon was recorded by the uh, secular historian Josephus. And in his uh, writings, Josephus says that I watched, quote, I watched Eleazar ben Simone light a root on fire, a root on fire, fire, put it to the nostrils of the demoniac and pull that entity out of that person. And he said something that, that re it really was a, a good point to me because it pointed me in the direction of afterlife phenomenon. He said, listen, he said, I know what I saw. I know the conversation that that exorcist had with that entity. He said, there's no way that I believe that possessing entity was a fallen angel. He said, that was a disincarnate mortal spirit who's disembodied and is seeking embodiment. And that put me on my heels, man, because I thought to myself, oh my God. Number one, why are you putting up burning roots to the nostrils? I've never heard that before at that time of a demoniac. All right. So, so I realized very quickly that 99% of the terminologies employed about de the demons, as far as the Ruach Ra'a or the evil spirit, the unclean spirit, all of them were references to afterlife phenomena. They were all references to mortality, all of them. And so I asked myself, if, the, if demons are not idols, and in particular, 
Check this out. This is what really threw me for a loop. The prophets said the following about these guys. They have no breath in them. Why, why would that matter? Why would that matter? Because they were rock and stone. They were made out of wood. They were carved out of, uh, you know, of rock. So, so early, I mean, even then, I started to look at biblical terminologies. What is an evil spirit? It's a ruach ra'a. What does ruach mean? Ruach means to inhale life through the nostrils. No wonder Eleazar ben Simon did what he did. Why? No one, right? So what, what does that mean? That's right out of Genesis. That's a creation narrative. According to Hebrew theology, God breathed life in the nostrils of Adam. <laughs> wow, I'd never heard that before. Yeah, so, so it's there. It has been staring at us right in the face. And because modern demonology, Western scholarship, we, or at least what's called systematic demonology, systematic demonology was tethered to descriptions and ignored the definitions and truly incredible data that we had this entire time. The Ruach Ra'a, that's the evil spirit. That's, that is a disincarnate being. There's never, there's no narrative in the pseudo-apocryphal writings there's no writings. There's none of it. Even implies that God breathed life into the nostrils of any angel, much less a fallen one. When we're talking about something discarnate, oftentimes we get into this sexual nature of the oh, yeah. demonic realm. What is it about the sexual, almost, I mean, I'll just say it, perverted nature of the demonic realm? All right. Whenever I talk about this, I get, I get very uncomfortable, even though it's my own work. It's terrifying. I'm, I'm telling you. It's, it, yeah, it's very chilling. So, in the first century, like I said, we, they begin to perceive demonic activity as afterlife phenomenon. And between the first and 16th, 16th centuries, we have very little, I mean, we have cases and, and literature uh, about um, what they would consider the debuk. Well, some people call it the dibuk, the debuk. Okay, now is that the proper pronunciation? Because we've always heard dibuk. And right. That's, we're, yes, we're talking about the Jewish dibuk box. And, yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, we'll just go with the dibuk then. And the, the dibuk, again, was their term for the afterlife phenomena they were encountering within the context of the exorcistic rite and diabolic possession. This is, this is very interesting here. In the 16th century, that word dibuk or dibuk uh, came to the fore. And for once, they take a term and they slap it on something new in their, their evolution of thought. Now, the Dibuk, Dibuk, sorry, Dibuk, the Dibuk, um, did not begin and end with possession. I wish it did. It didn't. There were two exorcists that were the, the most, uh, I guess, famous in Kabbalistic rites and rituals. 
The first one was Isaac Luria. The second one was Jaime Patel. Jaime Patel was his protege. And in the 16th century, much of the demonology um, in the Middle East changed while Catholicism was doing what it was doing and the different teachings um, uh, concerning their exorcistic rites. Uh, Isaac Luria was going out to graveyards, right? He was, he was mentoring a group of exorcists in the form of exorcism, not tied to uh, fallen angels, but instead he's sitting them down and saying, listen, I know you probably heard that we shouldn't talk to these beings. He says, but I find success in actually having a conversation with them, right? <laughs> sure. So what he did is throughout his lifetime, him and Hyde Mattel, what they would do was they, they would go out and they'd perform rituals, and then they would go home and they would chronicle every case they had. Now, there were two kinds of cases. There, like you said before, there was the malevolent entity, the possessing, haunting, quote-unquote demonic entity, that there, it was present. It was, it's there. However, there also were cases, like you mentioned before, where the possession was in play, but the possessing entity was not malevolent at all. In fact, it, there were many cases where the possessing entity would ask for prayer. <laughs> we, we have, I mean, there was a case that he had, this is interesting too, where one of his students had lived and died. This is speaking of Jaime Vitale now. And Jaime Vitale goes to sleep one night, has a dream. In the dream, his student comes to him. He's, he's passed away and says, listen, my master, tomorrow I will come to you. I need to speak with you. Jaime Vital didn't tell anybody. He wrote it in his journal. The next day, a mother brings a handmaiden to him by the age of 12 years old. The very first thing that comes out of her mouth is, hello, master. I told you I would come to you. Hmm. Yeah. Can you pray for me? That was what he wanted. Can you pray for me? So in their chronicalization of these events, both of them came down to a conclusion. It was almost a, a triangulated um, version of a data sample. In other words, what they would say is this. Obviously, there are evil possessing entities. And these particular entities operate on a different value system and a different belief system. However, conversely, there are entities that possess people who have no ill intent. And in his uh, uh, chronicalization, he characterized these different beings that they would encounter. Now, here is something that, that could be very emotional for a lot of people. He said that a lot of times, uh, these entities that really, they didn't want to hurt anybody, um, a lot of them were people who committed suicide. A lot of them were people who died at a young age, be it from murder or a, an accident, tragedy. A lot of them were entities that wanted to communicate to a loved one. And throughout their, their existences, their ministries and callings and exorcisms, what you start to see is a narrative beginning to, to reveal itself, a tapestry, a belief system, and manifestation and values 
that has transcended the microcosm of biblical antiquity. Now we're starting to see the face of afterlife phenomena for what it is. And that is you have two entities, period. You have entities who embody someone because they want help. They, they seek communication. Uh, some of them even wanted to have proper, proper burial rights done to them, which is in the case of Stymie the Elder, which he, you know, he saw that apparition with chains and he pulled it out the window, went and found a body in the ground with chains, properly buried him. The haunting stopped. So, but that's the people that, that really don't want to hurt people. Now, for the next fleeting moments, I want to anchor the rest of my research tonight on the malevolent entities because they had a completely different value system, a different belief system altogether. They operated as though we were currency to them. In like I said before, possession, I wish possession began and ended with exorcism. No, it didn't. Here's the issue. The data sample has to be handled properly. We have to intellectually humble ourselves and read it for what it is. Here's what I found, okay? Possession in the debut cases, a lot of them specifically in cases of women, begin by a woman going to sleep or being alone in an entity manifesting, grooming her emotionally. And I don't know if I could say this, but sexually, if I can't edit sure. it out. No, no. Yeah. I mean, uh, the explicit nature of the demonic realm can't be censored. So uh, okay. we need to talk about it as blunt as possible. Okay. Thank you for that, that freedom. And it has, to, it has to get out there because this is, this is history. Um, but yes, it would groom the victim. It would groom her. And then there would be an act of coition. There would be sexual intercourse. And then afterward, that is what led, many times, that is what led to possession. Now, we could go throughout history. Like I said before, they're not doing something different. What happened in Genesis 6 exactly? You know what I mean? What happened there? So what we're dealing with are the same entities. Uh, but that's how it began in many cases. Now, here's what I said before. And so I really hope that everybody can understand what I'm about to say here because it, it, it's, it's large. It's huge. It, it eclipses everything that systematic demonology teaches demons are not what they do that's a description that's a momentary uh, place in time so i'll tell you why it is that we have been so restricted history has been tugged tongue-tied stammering their tongues cleaving to the roof of their mouth because they cannot accurately interpret what it is they're encountering they're not what they do. They are who they are. These are beings, personal beings with personality. And so here's why I say that. Because if I told somebody that there was a woman 
who was possessed, but before she was possessed, she was uh, raped or there was some force, uh, some form of sexual intercourse. There would be systematic demonologists. But there's, dude, you know what they would say? They would say this, that's an incubus. Why? Well, be, because, uh, you know, that's what it does. No, it doesn't. That's not who it is. That's what it does from time to time. And so, so history would have us believing that the debuk in the 16th century and the incubus that Father Sinistri of Amino was recording, thousands of miles away, they're separate entities. They're different legends. They're different beings altogether. And they're not. They're doing the same things. So that's what my, my point is. We have to use different terminologies now. Because the torch that we were handed, that, that used to light the darkness, it's turned to ash. We have nothing left now. It, it doesn't work anymore. So now we have to look at the data sample for what it is. Those aren't two separate entities. They're not two separate fallen angels. What we have here is a very human interest, which right now, and I'm, I'm going to stop and we can go whichever direction, but I'm going to say this because there's thousands of ways I can go deeper. But let's just, let's just um, not even touch the physical part of this phenomenon. But let me just stop and say this. It's real. It's happening. And it wasn't a fantasy. And it happened all across the world. Okay, so you don't believe that there's interest in some kind of hybridization, uh, supernatural hybridization between, you know, a woman's ovum and a demonic birth of some kind, uh, an omen? I, I do. And I know where that's going to lead. It's going to lead to Genesis 6 and Nephilim. Well, no, I mean, well, since you brought it up, <laughs> it, 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 it very well could be. But, I mean, there are specifics here because people describe seeing hooves and horns. And they describe them with remarkable detail that is consistent for the Renaissance paintings to, you know, yes. elicit these entities on the chest of women. Yes. And so... Um, how do we begin to, uh, what, what's your okay, worldview on world that? View. that? That comes from Genesis 6. And it comes from the book of Watchers, the book of First Enoch. And when I, okay, this is going to get very dark as well. Give me about three minutes to explain what Genesis 6 was. And then that will give you context to what happens in the future with the D-book and the Incubus. Okay, Can I'll I do give that? you three minutes and 33 seconds. Okay, well, there we go. There we go. <laughs> so the legend of the Nephilim is uh, generally thought of as the following, that we have fallen angels that were called watchers and that they took unto women, they took, un, they took women and made unto them wives. And the Bible says, and they went into them, that's sexually, and that those women birthed progeny children and that when those, those children were hybrids, right? So that some people call them giants, whatever. You know, they're liminal beings. Like I said before, they're beings that are in between. And um, the, the teaching is that when those entities died, the giants died, that their spirits became the demons that we 
um, are experiencing today. Okay. Was that three minutes? I don't know. No, but, you're, you're fine. Okay. However, just because we can prove the existence of giants does not mean we can validate or even begin to understand how they came to be. There's a tremendous amount of disconnects here. Number one, how can fallen angels have the male appendages to be successful with such a right or such an act of coition? It's never there. And what we are left with was, well, they did eat at one time. And I'm thinking you can't get someone pregnant by going and eating something like, you know, get a donut. <laughs> See, I can prove to you. I'm very, you know, my, my fish swim upstream. Why? Cause I eat Dunkin' Donuts. What are you talking about? You know, you haven't had my oysters, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's sad. And I don't mean to be humorous about it, but that's it, literally, that's the only answer they have. And so what we have here is what I call a vehicle of meaning. And let me say this, the Hebrew thought did not originate, let me say that, this legend, rather, did not originate from human thought. What happened was, as, late, as early as the late Iron uh, period, Iron Age, this legend of what are called the Apkalu, the Apkalu, Mesopotamia, that's when that legend came to be. Now, that was right, right smack dab in the middle of Noah and, and the flood, which is why it's in Genesis 6. <laughs> but what I tell everybody is this, that even though the Israelites transposed the concept of the Apkalu, let, let me back up here, guys, okay? Now, the legend of the Apkalu was this. The Apkalu were called watchers, they were called gardeners, and they were called guardians. That's a trinity of terms. So Genesis 6 is not the only place that Hebrew thought transposed that legend upon. In other words, what I'm saying is the data sample is not limited to that period. So for someone to say this is what the watchers are, and I don't need to know anything else, is the equivalent of me asking a Hebrew, listen, what's a demon? And then I stop them in the middle sentence of history and say, listen, that's all I want to know. Don't give me second, you know, don't give me first century. Listen, that really fits my pet theory. I don't want to know what else you did with it. You know what I mean? I just want to do that. So it doesn't, it, none of it made any sense to me. So let me, let me back up and say this. The term watcher, was not exclusive to the Genesis 6 narrative. They didn't just put it and sprinkle under that tradition. They went throughout their funerary rites. And they slapped the legend of the Nephilim onto what is called Shomer. Now, guys, buckle up. It's about to get crazy. The watchers, like I said, the watchers were watchers. They're guardians. They're gardeners. Now, in order to understand what happened in Genesis 6 and what the sin was that was really committed, we really have to go into the future and see what, what, what else and what other traditions that the Israelites placed the watchers in. Okay, let's talk about funerary rites. According to archaeology and their literature, a watcher, and this is going to fit, 
It's going to fit. If you're familiar with the Nephilim theory, it's going to fit more than you've ever heard. It did for me. I couldn't believe it. It, it was remarkably chilly, though. <laughs> um, so the watcher was somebody who was employed by the family of a deceased person to watch over the body. So, so what happened was someone would pass away. The family would say, listen, we're going to go mourn for seven days, but we can't leave the body here unaccompanied. We need someone to sit next to it and to watch it. Watch this, okay? No pun intended. Watcher, guardian. What's he guarding? The body. Now, where were a lot of their tombs? In gardens. So, what happened? They were called shomers, watchers. They're still doing it right now in Orthodox Judaism. So, in Hebrew linguistics and theology, there is a concept of not touching the unclean thing. It's a Torah principle right out of Exodus. And so, what they were, what they were um, called upon to do is to guard the body, but not to touch it. Right? They could not touch the deceased, this watcher. Now, this, this idea of Shomer later on became a, uh, a ritual in marriage. It's called Shomer Nagia. And that is at the point when a husband and wife had preserved their touches, is what it's called. They preserved their touch to the point that at the end of the, the wedding, the husband would take his wife, and I need everyone to pay close attention to what's about to come out of my mouth. The husband would take his wife into the home. There were two things that he did. He shut the door and he he, he um they became intimate. He consummated the marriage. Now, let's go back to Genesis 6. What did they do? They took out of them wives. How? When? Where? How do we prove that? I'll tell you how we prove it. Because their offspring were called unclean spirits. What is unclean spirits in Hebrew? Tua, tamua. What's it mean? It means someone who touched the dead. Mm. I, so, I see where you're headed. <laughs> Rabbi Yochanan, yeah, Rabbi Yochanan ben Sakai in the first century revolutionized their demonology when he said this, he said, they're not just mortal, but these spirits are unclean because they came from the dead. There's still this element of there being a physicality to this that I'm missing from our conversation, yeah. yes, Nathaniel, sir. and I think it's here, mm -hmm. but I want to bring it right to, since we, are going to run out of time here soon. I want okay. to get to understanding what you've seen, touched, and seen physically, because there there are these, I mean, rules that seem to be set with this hierarchy that's in order 
mm-hmm. uh, things like iron. You mentioned uh, when you talked about the Iron Age, I started talking mm-hmm. about uh, wearing iron amulets or mm-hmm. uh, spreading salt or olive oil over your threshold. Correct. These kind of rules that are adopted to the demonic realm, what's your worldview on that? My worldview is this, even concerning Catholic exorcism, the, the throwing of holy water, um, that was a reference to baptism. Baptism was a form of exorcism in the New Testament. Now, let's get back, let's get back to the physicality of this, like you said. There is a currency and belief system that these entities are operating off of. And as far as I can tell, um, according to, and I'm going to wrap this up because I, I don't want to you know, take too much of your time, uh, but let me just speed read for a second. The physicality comes in the form of scarification on human bodies. It comes in the form of what Father Sinestrari called the milking of dead carcasses. Remember how I told you that we cannot figure out how the Nephilim procreated? Or right. the fallen, we, we couldn't do it, right? They have no appendages. Well, later on in history, you start to see what they've been doing all along. Because they've been looking. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so Sinestrari would talk about that, the physicality. Sinestrari was the first demonologist um, that came across um, cases where a woman. Uh, would claim to have a dream of an incubus and wake up to uh, male substance, if you will, on her body and on her bed. Let's talk about physicality. Um, there were cases where she, the person really did look like she had encountered something that was violently sexual and, and pushed himself on her. It was Father Sinestrari in his book on the incubus, succubus, that gathered physical doctors, 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 MDs, and said, listen, we're gonna do physical examinations of some of these people. And that was when he found what, are, what we would call in the occult, not me as in, if, not that I'm in the occult, but people in the occult would call them witch marks, devil's marks. Only these weren't any of those things. But after coition and possession, or even just coition, these entities would mark their victims in the most hidden places that were only found through autopsies. Now, here's something that's the most chilling part about it. They found a victim who had carvings of symbols in what's called scarification, not mutilation. Mutilation is a process, it's a result of an unguided process. This had shape and form to it, it's symbolism. And they found these scarifications underneath this person's eyelids. Okay, so is that basically ownership? What? Yeah, it's an act of branding. Okay. And the closest thing I can, can, can look at and point to is the victimology of serial killers. Which who probably in some degree are possessed already, and this is where they have yes, this, this idea. Okay, so what about the idea of unique symbols that seem to traverse time and space? Yeah. The, in particular, the mark of three, uh, three, mark- scr- three scratches in particular, uh, three raps on the door, uh, three symbols outside the threshold of your door. Uh, what's your worldview on that? Uh, is, I'm going to generalize this, and I'll get directly after that to the, the listing of three. Um, the symbolism that they're employing um, is what's called an imprint of culture. There's a, a um, he is an anthropologist, German anthropologist, Fritz Kramer, who went to Haiti and did a study on possession. And he encountered the same thing. And uh, during the possession of an ancestor, by the way, <laughs> um, the person that was possessed had been possessed so many times 
that his body was scarred from head to toe. And he remembers, and he said that because it was Haiti, um, the person was a person of color, but because he had scarred his body so much that it looked like he took ash, like ashes from fire, and put it all over his flesh. It was nothing but scar tissue. And he asked one of the people there, they said, Why, what, what's the point of scarification? He said, well, the scarification happens when that entity possesses that person. And he says, at the point of possession, now that scarification becomes that entity's social skin. So that goes back to what I said before. Possession never has never began or ended with exorcism. There's something much more chilling and apocalyptic at play here. What about people in between the stages that are being nurtured and groomed, um, which is I'm, the term "groomed" is such Terrible. an uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable term, but that's exactly what's going on when when you're inside uh, a place that is oppressed and you are marked up. Mm-hmm. And let's just say you're in a haunted area and um, you ha- you get three scratches on your body. Well, is that a form of branding or is that more like you've come too close and this is the way we're going to deal with you because it comes up time and time again? Both, both, both. I had a case where the, the lady, this is, this is nuts. Uh, the scarification happened on her, but it didn't happen on her. It happened through her. So the writing didn't, was not imprinted into her skin. It came through it. That's what's crazy. You couldn't even feel it. It wasn't like it was, it was, it wasn't even on the skin, it was beneath it. Okay. Now here's what happens. Number one, if they're branding people, they're branding people because it's of ownership. Now, the only thing I can explain is this. How, why would you brand someone, brand someone or brand them and then they die? What's the point of that? It's the, the, the scarification. Number one, it's symbolism. The symbolism is the simplification of language. Fritz Kramer said that it's the imprint of culture. Now, what, why are they doing that? First of all, second of all, what, what do these symbols mean to them, right? It doesn't really matter what it means to me because it, it, I can't do anything with that. All I'll do is project upon it my assumptions. So, so when we deal with scarification on bodies and symbolism in homes, first of all, we have to understand that much of what we're experiencing are what are called amulets. It's no different than someone doing a ritual in the occult. They do A, B, and C, and they put a symbol somewhere. It's either an offensive amulet or it's a defensive amulet. It's present because it has a motive to it. They're doing something. It's not just there to be seen. And so when I go into homes and I see that, number one, if it's the number three, I know that that entity has some form of memory of, of religion, specifically Christianity or Catholicism. Okay, so it goes to the Trinity? I would say, yes. Okay. Have you and ever been that. challenged on that? I mean, no. is there something that goes beyond the Trinity farther back? No. And I'll be honest, no, no. That's the only thing that, that we can think of at this time. Uh, the number three, I mean, like, okay, how about this? Number six, 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 six. That's a mistranslation of the Bible. I won't get into theology on this, but let me, that was my point before. These guys are not fallen angels. They're operating through what's called co- like spatial cognition and memory and movement. So when I go into a house and I see that this entity is employing religious terms, that means that he lived in a period of time where that term was known to him. 
And that's how he's choosing to communicate. So the, the, the problem with systematic demonology is that this is so, this is incredible. How about this one? Um, they all lie. All these guys lie until they feed into the belief system of Catholicism and then they're demons. That's a model that's incorrect. And not that I'm discrediting or challenging Catholicism, but I'm saying the data sample has to be expanded here. And so I'm going to say this because I, I think this is the most, one of the most profound points I've, I've encountered in my research. There are two definitions of Mariolatry. The first one is the deification of Mother Mary, the worship of Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. That happened first. The second version of Mariolatry was when the occult latched onto it and they took that belief system, that emerging belief system, and then they would employ it in their rituals. So instead of deifying Mother Mary, they would burn her fingers so that she couldn't do the rosary. Okay? So, so number one, when you go into a house and you see that entity burning rosaries, or yeah, then it lived in a period of time where that measure of religion, that belief existed. You understand what I'm saying? It was cognitive. Of it. It, it was conscious of it. Right, I understand. I understand what you're saying, Nathaniel, but it's so contrary to a typical conversation with someone who's looking at the war between, you know, heaven and earth and hell, and and looking through it through the lens that these are basically lost earthbound spirits here that are, you know, tempting man to to have flesh once more. It seems to. I mean, some of them are. It, sl it slaps in the face of there being some kind of deeper hierarchy. Do you think there is a hierarchy oh, to this? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. I, okay. I don't believe in the terms of Leviathan, Baal, and all those things. I think those are, you know, they're, they're, they're just titles. But I will say this. There is 100% a currency at play here. That's what Sinistrari was, was writing about the entire time. And, and what I'm saying is, is that in terms of Mariolatry, did you know that there's no exorcism prior to Mariolatry existing where demons believed in Mariolatry or was afraid of Mariolatry? Why? If it's truth, if it's okay, if demonology as a whole, as a systematic thematic element, if it is unified, if there is one sole religious constitution, one sole religious deity, then all of them would have the same fears, they would believe in the same faiths, and they, they would fall at the same rituals, but they don't. Sinistrari even said that he would encounter pagan demons, demons who didn't respond to anything. And yet, and yet in Baghdad in 1990, we have a case of possession, a debuk, not really a debuk. They realized that the possessing entity was a Muslim. So the, pre, or the, so the uh, rabbi took him to an imam. The imam quoted the hadith. The entity left. <laughs> I love it. I love right? It. Why? Because yeah. it's tethered to geographical locations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, they're impacting their worldview beyond the grave, and they're employing the terms that they know. Right. And, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian. They would have the Trinity and therefore the three scratches. Um, but yet there, there's a, 
a physicality to the mark that is yes, sir. supernatural in nature. I mean, oftentimes witnesses describe a burning sensation, yep. for example, uh, not just a physical scratch. So there, I mean, even with what you described on the, the eyelids themselves, and there are these rules in place. Uh, are you thinking that, is it just the faith alone in something like holy water? Is it just faith alone in salt and olive oil? Or is there something more going on that we don't understand? Are, are we even asking the right questions? Okay. Here's what I think is going on. I think that Catholicism has based the success or based the validity of their rites on the success of them and not on the reason for them. What do I mean by that? You go listen to Father Ripperger or a couple other the, uh, the exorcists, they'll tell you, even in the um, even in the rituals and in Be Gone Satan, they'll tell you that the reason they throw holy water on the person is to remind the demon of baptism. Well, my question is, when was that demon baptized? And if it's afraid of baptism, why don't you just baptize him? Wouldn't that work? So even that ritual right there is relying on a memory of the demon. It's right there. There's no fallen angels getting baptized. There's not even progeny of fallen None of it fits. And so, so when we're dealing with the, the understanding of memory, like I said, memory in motion, memory in movement, what they're displaying is a fear that only exists at a certain time, and it follows the evolution of human thought. We have more exorcisms during religious persecution or thereafter. Why? Because there are more disincarnate people. And why is it that their, their, their memory and spatial cognition and worldview is limited to a particular time in history and a geographical location? I mean, so, so it's profound. It's a million more times meaningful to me to sit down with a data sample and say, okay, listen, I'm not saying that the ancients were wrong. I'm saying I know what they experienced was real, but maybe we have been using descriptions as definitions, and here's the next stage. And these entities, the other entities that are, that are, that are playing by different roles because they're playing a different game, the reason systematic demonology exists today is because systematic demonology is their last attempt at anonymity. And that is the projection of modern demonologists. I'm dealing with Leviathan. Okay, I'll be Leviathan for you. What's up? So we will give them roles, they'll play it. But it, it just falls apart on its face. So, oh. okay, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, I just, uh, there's a lot, uh, there's always so much that I want to impact, uh, mm -hmm. unpack with your conversation here. What about people that are describing other beings outside of the demonic realm? Um, I mean, we, we sit at the wake of a larger conversation about disclosure mm -hmm. involving alien beings, for lack of a better word. Um, where are you at with the other element of, you know, uh, non-earthly beings? Oh, well, yeah. Well, I would say this, that there's a, a very thin knife's edge between possession and abduction. Um, 
I always play around with words. And remember, okay, so 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 um, Fritz Kramer, he said that scarification was the imprint of culture. What if I said that scarification was the implant of culture? Okay. What are we, what are we seeing when we see scoop marks? <laughs> In the occult, there's a book out there for everybody who's listening. It's called Eros and Evil by R.E.L. Masters. I just finished it about a month ago. And in it, he doesn't even mention UFO abduction phenomenon. But if anybody out there is familiar with Dr. Carla Turner's work and Daryl Sims' work, you will start to see just an unbelievable amount of similarities. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're virtually, in many cases, they're just alike. Um, in, the, in the occult, in the middle medieval, medieval period, you would have witches who would put ointment on their body, go to bed, and leave their body and go to a different location altogether, but their body would stay in the bed through ointment. There were cases where um, they would go to the sabbat, what are called sabbats. They would have intercourse with the demon. And, and I'm going to quote Montague Summers. I can quote R.E.M.L. Masters, but I like Summers too. And Summers said that these people, these women, would record that the demon's um, male appendages were metallic and cold. And they didn't just go into the part of coition, the physical part of the woman's body, the genetic. They would go into every accessing point in their body. And when everything was done, they're physically and emotionally, spiritually drained. And then afterwards, when they would recant, recount what happened to them, they would say that, that that person, that entity, did not even attempt to look human. It didn't even attempt to look like a, a penis. It, it was just essentially metallic tubes. And, I mean, it, it gets... So it, there's something going on here that is, um, and it, it goes back to Sinistrari. Sinistrari said they're, they're, they're draining, they're milking the carcasses of the dead. Blood, everything. Why? Um, and, and I mean, even if you get to some of the modern cases, mm -hmm. St. Peter haunting with Dr. Barry Taft, what did he say? He said, we saw, we, we, we have plasma dripping from a cupboard. Why? Where'd they get it? Well, is there something sacred about the blood that gets to the root of this? I don't think so. Uh, well, okay, in terms of sacrifices, yes. We can prove that all the way back to the Greek theologian origin. Um, but in terms of what they're taking from us, absolutely. Absolutely. Sinistrari saw it. Montague Summers saw it. Montague Summers would take the male, quote-unquote, substance that was left in victims of the debook and incubus, uh, and he said it was either dry, aged, old, yellow, or black. That led your, 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 your older demonologists that led them to believe that the reason we have incubus, male entities who have sex with women, and then female entities who have sex with women, the reason we have that is because the incubus is going to get eggs 
or no, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the incubus is going to get um, semen, and then he's trying to put it in the living person. The, the succubus is going and getting, um, yeah, it, you know what I'm saying. It, it's, so the whole point in this was that the reason, they're, the reason in antiquity they were guarding the grave, why? It's because we have a being going into it, and this is not my research. This is what they said. So I'm, don't don't put it on me. They said, yeah, the the incubus would want to impregnate, so he would go and get semen from a de- a dead person. That's what they said. Mm-hmm. And so that was my issue. You you mentioned earlier about hybrids. Yeah, they're hybrid, but they're not hybrid like we suppose. They're not hybrid in terms of let's go add some, um, you know, mechanical or technology to, to DNA. No, they're hybrid because they're the living dead. And that was the whole purpose of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, since we're in such a, you spoke earlier about this liminal state and these beings are liminal in nature. Here we are in a very liminal state globally. and. Yeah. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at these liminal states erupting supernatural causes all around the globe. Do you think that we will be seeing more supernatural acts as we yeah. kind of wane and flux between these two worlds? Yeah, um, specifically after the coronavirus, yeah, 100%. I'll tell you why I believe that. Uh, it's because the entities who did not have consent prior to this have had two or three months now of isolating that individual and working on them to get consent. And I would not, and, and I know the other exorcists have mentioned it already, mm-hmm. not that I'm an exorcist, you know, but you know, that, mm-hmm. that they're anticipating a high manifestation of, if not demoniacs, at least the, uh, the people with attachments because mm-hmm. they're, they got to go out there and now they have to get these things off of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I worry about, of course, and just getting to, uh, a man's ego without a job, the depression rate for people that are already toying with suicide. I can only imagine that this is the perfect playground yeah. for a, a non-earthly being uh, wanting to try to induce those kind of things. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I my sister, she had a friend in high school who, you know, he, he did it. And it's a, it's a sad state of affairs in terms of how much time these beings have had to really, I mean, you're talking isolation, not just from anything religious, but from people. <laughs> and it's, it's not just them, even. I mean, I, I have a lot of empathic people, empaths who will message me like, you know, are you feeling this? I had an empath friend of mine who got sick and I couldn't figure it out. He got sick, dude, I'm talking for months. I was afraid. I was terrified. I thought, oh my God, like, am I going to lose him? You know, he's a very private guy, but he got sick. And, uh, and then after he got better, he just messaged me one night and he goes, you know what? I said, what? He goes, I don't really feel good. He's like, and this has been months ago. He goes, I, I just, I feel like something's happening. So he felt it, I think first, uh, physically and then spiritually. And then later on this hits and now the other empaths are going, Hey, listen, something's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Okay, there's currency pl- at play. Uh, wait, now, by currency, you mean man. You mean flesh. Oh, yeah. Okay. This, so in terms of um, blood sacrifices, there, the Greek theologian Origen said that 
when these entities will re request a sacrifice of blood, it's because, and this is interesting, it's because that entity wants to get a body again. And the only way he can do it is through the ritual of, of blood sacrifice. Now, he worded it, worded it in a different way because they were, he's a great theologian. So he said um, that, that he has a garment of spirit around him and that when, uh, you know, when the blood is released, that the life's in the blood and that that garment becomes more visible. And I think all of the above is true in description. But what I also believe is this, the act that was performed in Genesis 6 was a form of possession. So it was necrophilia and necromancy. What were they trying to do? What, what, what is this whole thing about? Uh, Sinestrari, they were harvesting different parts of the human biological nature. They were, they were taking things. What's happening in a UFO abduction? They're not going over here and asking for RQ. RQ. You know, what they're doing is they're transplanting us to a point where we have no control over it and they're taking semen, eggs, everything. Um, yeah, so. But then there's this whole backstory about there being a program in place where we're trading. I mean, we're, we're given secrets, ancient, ancient secrets, hidden technology. Yeah. Is that all bullshit? I don't think it's. I don't think it's BS. I think that what we're seeing here is, in my mind, there are at least three dimensions to what's happening. So in the occult, they will perform a rite because that second dimension directly above us either told them what, in most cases, told them what to do. <laughs> at least in the history, I want this to be done, A, B, and C. It's a formula. And because they did that ritual, that entity on that second dimension says, I'm going to do something for you, right? Or even in, the, even in the case of Edward Kelly and John Dee, that image, that image would tell them, that, that apparition would say, listen, before I give you the Enochic language, I want you to do A, B, and C for me. What's happening is that that second dimension, like you said, it's bartering with some of us. And saying, if you do this for me, I will give you knowledge. I'll give you understanding in some, like, a, who was it? A, oh, not John D. I forget his name. Anyway, Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons. I'll give you technology. You know? So, but then again, at the same time, when we go into homes and we see Mother Mary, a statue of Mother Mary, and we see a form of Mariolatry taking place, that's, a, that's an occultic ritual where the entity has went in, put an upside down cross, or took the cross, right? Taking the cross and put it upside down, that's, a, that's an occult ritual, right? So do you remember what I told you about how this is memory in movement, memory in motion? They're operating off of memory here. So you have, I mean, you have entities that like, they'll burn Bibles. Why? That's, that's not just a random act. But it's so interesting that they're attached to time and history yes. and not time and future. I mean, if they, I, if they bypass time, why right. be so obsessed with the past? Uh, I'll tell you why. Well, yeah, also, and to, to add to that point, we, we don't see ghosts that are futuristic. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's a very interesting thing. So, so to answer that question, I'll tell you why. Remember how I told you that symbolism was the simplification of language? 
like Freud, Freud, the, 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 the great uh, psychologist, he said this, he called it the iceberg theory. And what he taught was psychoanalysis. There's a paper that I'm reading, I was reading it today earlier, and they were talking about hauntology and how that you can prove consciousness, and this is a theory, that consciousness of an unconscious being can be proven through psychoanalysis. What is psychoanalysis? Reverse engineering the ritual that they're performing. What rituals are they performing? Well, they're burning Bibles. They're carving flesh. They're putting crosses upside down. So the reason is that they're tethered to time is not just because they, um, they, they existed in that time period, but it's also because they're employing rituals that existed in that time. And, and we see them as symbols. They see them, even now, they see them as a, mean, a, way, a means to an end. I want to do something. And that was my point, and I hope you're following what I'm saying. I know it's, it's very difficult sometimes to explain, but the third dimension here is not us performing rituals for them. It's them performing rituals in our world for someone else. And we're being who we don't, I don't know. I don't know, but I can say this, that there's a, see, they were the ones who gave them to us first. Where did they get them from? So, okay. So what stops you from saying Lucifer? I mean, do you stop short of saying that there is a boss? Um, well, Lucifer came from the Latin Vulgate, um, by Jerome. I mean, Lucifer comes, it was the king of Babylon. It wasn't until the Latin Vulgate that somebody said, okay, this has to be Lucifer in terms of a, a, a you know, the devil. Um, but I, I don't think that's the case. I, I, I don't know. I, I haven't, my research has not led me to see into that depth of darkness yet. Um, I'm more researching what it is we can do to counteract and react to these entities and really trying to understand what it is they're doing, why it is they're doing it. Because remember how I told you, I said, okay, they're liminal. They're, they're being in between. Um, that's why a lot of times I'll have demonologists. I say, listen, I know what I feel. I know I felt something that was a fallen angel. And my point to them is, well, if you're dealing with an evil, molted being who was human and still has human characteristics, but he's, he's being in between, he will, he will come to you and make you feel like he's something, it's just how it is. He's different. He's what Rudolf Otto would call holy other, W-H-O-L-L-Y. So, but speaking of those entities, they're at, they have a different belief system. They have a different value system. And right now, I'm, I'm going through the literature and specifically in the deboot cases to, to try to understand why it is they did what they did. There was one case, excuse me, there was one case that uh, Isaac Luria had where he was interviewing this, this quote-unquote demon. And what had happened was there was a uh, newly married woman and they were on, her and her husband were on the honeymoon and the husband um, I think he had left to go get some food or something happened. And that entity, I mean, he just showed up 
and he, he did what he did, and then he possessed her, and he's talking to Isaac Luria, and this is what he said. And I'm telling you guys, it's like it's like a checkerboard and a chessboard. It looks like the same board, but there are different rules at play. He looked at Isaac Luria and said, "Listen." He said, I was permitted to go in unto her. That's the third dimension. Who permitted him? What law, what law sanctioned that act in that dimension? This is, I'm telling you, it's, it's far darker than the imagination of man. So what is it they're after? We know through history they're after substances, eggs, semen, blood, plasma. And in my mind, I do believe these entities are partially physical. I do not believe that they're incorporeal. Incorporeal, yeah. I don't believe that, wholly at least. Because I think that if Genesis 6 was guarded, the whole thing was guarding dead bodies. If it's in Australia's work, was this is what's happening. They're going to dead bodies and they're taking substances and literally trying to implant it into living people. Then no wonder we go into homes and it smells like decomposition. No wonder we go into homes and there's blood plasma dripping from the cupboards. No wonder, no wonder. How about this? Let's talk about the uh, haunting in Connecticut. No wonder the, the whole idea was necrophilia, and that's why it was stained with the consciousness of a disincarnate being. No wonder. You uh, live in a very difficult world, <laughs> Nathaniel. So what do you do for yourself to bring yourself out of what you're immersed in it's i mean the last two hours are going to be incredibly dark for the listeners to listen to i think i find sorry. it and i find it endlessly fascinating and i i can i mean obviously you do too you've written about it what do you do for yourself to get yourself um back into the light um i smoke cigars <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I'm not kidding. I like me some Fuente, yeah. Don Carlos, number two. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I read. I, um, uh, I, I just, I read and I read, man. I, mm -hmm. I, I, most of what I read now is academic papers and mm -hmm. understanding that it's the, the idea is psychoanalysis. How we, right? You know, I mean, this could stand so, yeah. to be a very lonesome journey to have like a loved one in your life or to have children immersed in and around you with this. I can't. This I, I, is, so this is a path for you. You've chosen to walk yeah. this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's, and the most rewarding times are twofold. It's when you get a revelation or, you know, you come across a piece of the puzzle that fits into a, something that, you know, you had no piece for, and you say, okay, now that looks more, you know, it looks clearer for me. That's rewarding. And then it's also when you get a phone call, like I did last night or two nights ago, where a guy is having issues and he said to listen he goes i need to know if my my ex-wife the spirit that was attached to my ex-wife will be attached to my daughter and instantaneously i said i hear the name emma and i said i'm laying on a bed and i said i see an entity a male entity coming into my room and bam 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 he told me exactly what happened and he said my daughter's name's emma that's rewarding to me because right. i know i know that no matter what humanity has experienced in history Here's the issue. 
we're not going to them for answers. They're coming to us because they need something from us. So that tells me that we play a big role in whatever they're doing. And that I think that for the first time in history, that demonology is starting to, to relight that torch. And that's my life's work so that one day I can give my work. And a lot of demonologists don't want to do this, even parapsychologists. I talked to a parapsychologist one time who treated me like I was trash. He had no, he thought I was a right, systematic demonologist. He had no idea that I'm studying afterlife phenomena. That's what he's doing. <laughs> I didn't even get a chance to tell him what I was doing. But my whole goal in this is that when I live and die, I can lay, I can have my own library of the books that I've written. And that I can lay all my research at the feet of someone who's hopefully greater than I am. Who, who can take what I've given to them and, and what Sinistrari and Montague Summers and Malachi Martin, all of them, all of them, and so that they can take it to the next generation and take it further. Um, because if not, I mean, every generation is still going to have hauntings. Well, in closing here, is there anything that you can tell the audience to protect um, themselves? Yeah, absolutely. Now, what often happens is that these entities will manipulate you by bringing to memory the most painful parts of your lives. It might be abuse. It might be a divorce. It might be you lost your job. It might be your car getting repossessed. Um, it might be, like I said, a divorce. Your marriage fell apart. It, it could be anything. It could be the father abandoning you. It could be a mother who, who puts you up for adoption. Whatever it is. Whatever it is, they will use that part of you that has healed. They will try to manipulate those voids in you to the point where they will speak through those voids and those voids will become their voice and you'll be ruled by it. And so I guess I can say this is that you have to self-realize. You have to step into yourself and realize that, listen, next time a thought comes to me, and it knows more about me than I know about myself. It knows right where to go. Tries to tell me, you know, they were right when they did this. And that's why they hurt you. And, and here's the real, real curse they like to hiss into people's ears. You deserve what happened to you. You have to treat it like it's a cancer. You have to stop it. No, I don't believe that. That's it. I'm not saying that's the sum total of spiritual warfare, but I'm telling you, many times they'll throw a thought in there to see if you believe it. And when you believe that thought, they have their first evolution of form in you. So I've been lately teaching people how to curse the curse. And... That's a whole other show. But yeah, that's what I would say. But. I love that. Curse the curse. The book, A Moment Called Man, my guest, Nathaniel Gillis. Man, it's been an amazing two hours and it, and it flew by for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I, no doubt. I, could, I could go on and on with you, but um, maybe we can get you back on the show here and we can talk about uh, the curse of the curse. So I, would love I to appreciate see. your time, man. Thank you. Thank you, sir. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And um, I wish everyone the best. And I hope to hear from you guys or be on again mm -hmm. soon. And it's been, it's been awesome, Bob. It's been awesome. Thank you for having me. All right, man. Be safe out there. And uh, thanks again, Nathaniel. A Moment Called Man by my guest, Nathaniel Gillis. Thanks again, Nathaniel. 
and uh, order that book. Get on Amazon. Click away. Order that baby. That's uh, a worthwhile read. All right. If you want to do something else worthwhile, you can do it. As I mentioned, you can hop on Patreon.com and for three bucks, download an audio experience. Masquerading as an audio book, The Al Moon Lab, a shared paranormal experiment. And the word shared implies more than me, right? That means there's other people involved, certainly more people than just the property owners. And we talk all about that, the weaving road, the long, winding, weaving road that took me and so many others, and still does, out to the Al Moon Lab. So, again, patreon.com forward slash strangebrowradio, or better yet, go to strangebrowradio.com, and there, at my website, the website, a website, you'll find our quarantine webinars, you also find what are called our upcoming strange strolls. So I've spoken a little bit about that before. And to reiterate, this is us uh, trying to increase our membership and me get out of the house more and do crazy shit. This is my way of having you involved in some adventures. Now, right now, they're only once a month. I don't want to keep it that way, but we'll see what interest lies here. So... Remember those choose-your-own-adventure books? Well, that's exactly what we're doing here. You're going to choose your Tobe adventure. And then we have two choices. Right now, Sorceress Hollow. Not Sorcerer's Hollow, like I thought. Sorceress Hollow. Or Hidden Hill Cemetery. And I'm going there for 30 minutes. Why 30 minutes? Well, the HD card in the 4K camera only records 30-minute segments at a time. And I want to do one full shot. No edits. No bullshit. Straight shooting. Going to a creepy location. Not always creepy. These two are kind of creepy. And um, amazing lighting system, amazing camera, amazing audio. Now, if you go to strangebrowradio.com and you find the strange strolls uh, icon or the uh, area to click on, <laughs> I can't even remember what they're called. And once you're inside that window, uh, you'll be able to take your iPhone or your smartphone turn on the camera portion of your phone and you'll, you're just going to hold your camera up above that QR code. It's a little tiny barcode looking thing and it's going to take you to a poll. Well, that poll is like pages in a choose your own adventure book and you're going to vote on where I go, one or two places. Right now it looks like I'm going to Hidden Hill Cemetery, but poll doesn't close till the 14th. And then you can choose up to two items I take with me and then you can choose what I do when I get there. It's a lot of fun. It's supposed to be fun. So I, I hope you take time to do that. And then, you know, you have a voice in my fate. <laughs> you need better things to do in your life. But um, anyway, check that out at strangetrolls.com. All right, that's it for today. I don't think I'm forgetting anything. Nope. All right, that's it. I will see you in the trees. Bye.